The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Amen. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Now perhaps you're sitting there and you're saying, Psalm 1, Harry, I thought... We were in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and we were, and we will. This morning, I'm asking you to turn to Psalm 1. Now, let me explain why. Uh, I'm doing something I have done in four decades of ministry, less than what's on a hand. And that is, uh, I'm pulling a, a Peyton Manning, I'm calling an audible. Uh, what is it Peyton Manning would say behind the center? Uh, Omaha, Omaha, Omaha. This was uh, something that I did not do very easily and prayed about and thought about and sought counsel from others about. But um, given the decisions it had to make, make because of the spread of flu and COVID, Omicron, what I think is what it's called now, um, and uh, in the school and other ministries um, given... Uh, the, I was, I've never, first time in my life, I was deluged with emails, text messages, and phone calls all day yesterday and last night asking for prayer uh, because of the contagious nature of this. So continue to practice medical protocols, please. Uh, but, um, as I, um, as I received that and knowing our ministry theme, of servant stewardship of spiritual gifts is so important. You'll remember I said I am praying that God will allow every one of our members to discover, develop, and deploy their spiritual gifts. And my conviction, and I know yours, that we don't want to jump into something in which there is so much ignorance. By the way, it was in the first century. The most definitive text on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 starts off, I would not have you to be ignorant. Knowing that the theology of spiritual gifts is crucial for the right stewardship of spiritual gifts. And we have four marvelous texts. It was um, my conviction, given what I knew would happen with the weather and the COVID and the holiday and the uh, schedules and all that was taking place and what was coming to me, that I just felt in God's providence he would have me delay that first text, First Peter 4, and then we'll move to First Corinthians 12, and then we'll move to Romans 12, and then we'll end up in um, Ephesians 4. It just seemed to me that uh, God was saying, um, it, I, we need to do a standalone sermon today and let's dive into it when um, we perhaps have got a handle on all of these contributing things as well as all of the dire forecasts on the weather. So 
I thought I'd do that. And I think it's kind of evident here today uh, that that's exactly what kind of happens. Um, and so uh, to, I just I just prayed about it and felt the most um, uh, good stewardship of those texts would be to wait, kind of weather this week and then, pardon the pun, weather this week and then dive in next week. So I hope that. But I, then I said I don't want to simply... While it's a standalone sermon, it can also be very beneficial in our con- at, that we've been studying on stewardship and now looking at the stewardship of spiritual gifts. What would be a text very helpful? So I'm taking you to a text of scripture. Now I'm going to frighten you. A text that 35 years ago when I preached, I'm sorry, 38 years ago when I preached, made an unbelievable impact in my life and set the pattern for my convictions of how discipleship is done. And it's Psalm 1. Now, here's where I'll frighten you. I preached on it 38 years ago with 27 sermons. This morning, I'm going to do one. Uh, so, um, I promise I will not try to do all 27 sermons in this one sermon. But I want to give you some handles on it. I think it will be beneficial for your life as a follower of Christ, a disciple, and your life as you disciple others in your family, in your congregational community, in your small group. This is, I believe, the template, the boilerplate for discipleship, and you'll see why as I take you through it uh, in these few moments. Would you look with me in Psalm 1, and let's read the Word of God. This is God's Word that's read in your hearing, <clears throat> which is inerrant, infallible, and sufficient. Blessed is the man, our New American Standard, how blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By God's grace, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. I love this psalm, and I'd like to maybe tie you to a text of scripture as we dive into this psalm. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenlies. And then he describes that for the next 13, next uh, 11 verses. And in this doxology, that's what the word blessing comes from, doxa. We get the word doxology from it. How blessed, 
How blessed, how blessed of the Lord is that man through whom Christ gives every spiritual blessing. Now, in life, how do we lay hold of that? I've shared with you all one time that a lady came up to me after a sermon and said, Pastor, I think you've had the second blessing. And with my normal sanctified sarcasm, I just couldn't help myself. I said, oh, yeah, I've got the second blessing. And by the way, I, I got the third one. And she says, the what? I said, yeah, the third. And then and the fourth. And she said, you know, I never heard of those. And I took her to this text in Ephesians. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I said to her, I said, ma'am, I have all of the blessings of God. My problem, and I think what you're driving at, is am I using them? Am I connected to them? Are they at work in me, on me, and through me? That's what I love about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 gives you the template, the boilerplate, of how the blessings secured by Christ from the Father are delivered to you by His Spirit. That's what Psalm 1 gives you. The Psalms come in five books. They're arranged in five books, these Psalms that uh, you have in your Bible. And this, um, and those five books, the very first book is called the, uh, the teaching Psalms, the didactic Psalms. And the first of the didactic Psalms is Psalm 1. A lot of people, like for instance Charles Spurgeon, who wrote uh, significant sermons, and they're found in a couple of volumes called uh, The Treasury of David. Uh, Spurgeon, when he deals with this psalm, calls it the Beatitude of the Old Testament. How blessed. You know, the Beatitudes, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, blessed is the man. He, they call it the Beatitude. He calls it the Beatitudes. Now, uh, and by the way, when you read and you see that word B-L-E-S-S-E-D, uh, you have to determine how to use this thing in terms of noun or verb or, um, or adjective and adverb. And, uh, but it depends, what it is doing will reveal the way, I mean, will dictate how you pronounce it. Uh, if you are speaking of the one who should receive, uh, of the one who should receive blessing because he is able to bless, you say, blessed. If you are talking about those who are in need of blessing and they receive blessing, they're blessed. That's why this psalm should be read, not blessed is the man, but blessed is the man. And, uh, and this blessed man, this truly, biblically joyful, happy man is then, uh, t- we're told how he exists, why he exists, and how these blessings from God by grace through Christ in his spirit, how they are delivered to him in life. And I want to give you three thoughts about the blessed man from the, or the blessed man from the text, but I want to say one more thing, if I can, before we go to this. Whenever you're reading prophecy or the Psalms or the Proverbs, it is given to you the way that the Hebrews would write prophecy or Psalms or Proverbs, they would use poetry. They have a, po- a, a, the genre of writing is poetry. And whenever they do poetry, uh, 
they give, they use parallelisms. That is, they'll make a statement in a line and then they will repeat a statement that's related to the previous statement in the next line. It may even extend to three lines. It's what we call parallelisms. Now, some of these parallelisms are saying the same thing with some different words to build your understanding of what that thing is. Uh, And those are parallelisms that are building with one another. They are parallelisms that are building on each other. But some parallelisms are given in order to bring a contrast. We call those antithetical parallelisms. And you see that through the Psalms. Now, look back at your Psalm, put it in front of you for a minute. Let me show you. Hopefully this will be helpful as you study prophetic text and as you study um, the Psalms and the Proverbs because it's full of these parallelisms. Parallelisms that build on a truth are parallelisms that present contrasting truths, antithetical parallelisms. And you got both in this text. Psalm 1 is set up as a parallelism. Look at verse 1. How blessed is the man. And then comes the description. Now, go down to verse 4. The wicked are not so. Now we look at the wicked. So we've got the blessed man. Then we've got the condemned man. We've got the blessed man who knows the joy of the Lord in his salvation. We've got the condemned man standing under the judgment of God. That's an, it is arranged as an, an, an antithetical parallelism. But, but, when you look at the parallel, when you look at the blessed man, you see these parallelisms that build on each other. Such as, take a look, how, it says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Let's build on it. Does not stand in the path of the sinner. Let's build on it. Does not sit in the seat of the scorner. Then it says, but, and then now in contrast to that or alongside of that, instead of walking in the counsel of the ungodly, the path of the sinner, the seat of the scorner, but in contrast, here we go, antithetical, you just saw parallelisms building each other, Three in a row. Then in contrast to that, here's the other parallelism imposed upon it. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. You see two more statements that build on each other. Then comes another statement. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of living water. Now watch the parallelisms that build. This tree will, will yield its fruit in its season. This tree is um, bears fruit in its season. This tree's leaf does not wither. And so you see how all of that builds on each other. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, Harry, how in the world did you come up with 27 sermons? Don't worry. I was a student pastor. I was just getting started. I was just a couple of years into it, and I had a congregation that was asking the same thing then. But let me give you one way. When you lay out those first three verses, what do you have? You have the priorities of the blessed man. You have the passions of the blessed man. You have the portrait 
the picture of the blessed man. Then when you come to the antithetical part and down to the next verse, the wicked are not so. What does that mean, the wicked are not so? They walk in the counsel of the wicked. There's your contrast. You just go back up to what you just went through and take it opposite. The, the condemned man is the opposite. They seek counsel of the wicked. They seek the path of a sinner. They seek the counsel of the mockers and the scorners. They, the company of the mockers and the scorner. They have no delight in the word of God. So you can see every sermon I preached on each one of those, I was able to preach in contrast or called to preach in contrast by that simple statement, the wicked are not so, because the wicked are not like everything that you've just looked at in the blessed man. They're the opposite of it. And then you got the picture of the wicked man. The picture of the wicked man is not tree planted, but chaff blown in the wind. And so you see how it stands in parallelisms, and that would guide you as you study. And I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts of it, and I've already given you the outline. What are the priorities of a blessed man? There are three that are given to you, all in the negative. Why the negative? Well, you know, when I was a kid, you had to take driver's ed at school. And when I walked in the driver's ed classroom, number one, one of my coaches taught driver's ed. That's how coaches were able to get a full salary (laughs) in school when I was growing up. And some of my coaches were not actually known for their scholarship in life. And so you're going to teach driver's ed. And so I would go in and the coach would teach. His name was Coach Rufus. I'll never forget that. And I went into his class and the first thing I saw was be a defensive driver. If you'll go talk to college uh, coaches, uh, maybe even professionals, but particularly college coaches, they will recruit great athletes, and they know you got to be defensive and you got to be offensive, but they know the key to offense is defense. You stop the team from scoring, and you take the ball from them so you can score. And they focus on defense in order to move to the offense. Now, sometimes the best defense is a good offense. But they understand the importance of defense in life. So it is in the Christian life. You're walking through a minefield. Particularly, men, you're on my heart. You're just two strokes of a key on a computer into plunging into the abyss of the death of a marriage, a life, a family, a witness, a ministry. Ladies, you're just two chat rooms away. Satan has devised all kinds of, I think of the, boy, isn't this last, these conflicts, this last 20 plus years, uh, don't they become informative for you for the Christian life? You know, you go over, Saddam Hussein is built, they start saying mission accomplished, and then they find out, no, mission wasn't accomplished. By You you took down the head, but now all these other people are still fighting. And by the way, they're not fighting fair. They don't show up in a uniform. They come camouflaged. 
And by the way, they don't fight stand up. They bury an explosive device that will just explode on you. Now do you see why the Bible says put on the armor of the Lord? Now do you see why the Bible says take up the weapons of the Spirit? Now do you see why the Bible says walk circumspectly, walk carefully? Have you ever watched these various recon teams from the our, our military forces in battle? Watch how they walk, look how they scan, what they're looking for, taught what to look for. Same way in the Christian life. You and I are to walk carefully, walk circumspectly. And David does not leave this up to your imagination or ingenuity. He gives you three focuses with this ne- these negatives, three negatives to employ, employ in your life. Number one, the first negative is do not walk. Don't let your life be directed by the counsel of the ungodly. Be, here's the way Jesus said it. After he gave the parable of the sower, the spreading of the word, what did Jesus say? He said, be careful who you listen to. And in the other gospel, they quote him saying, be careful what you listen to. When all is said and done, the pupil becomes like the teacher. Um, the greatest decision you ever make in your life is when, by God's Spirit, you come to Christ as your Lord and Savior. The next most important decision you make in your life is your relationship to the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. That is the next important decision by the Spirit of God. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful what you listen to. This is why the Bible tells us to test those who occupy the pulpits of our church. This is why the Bible tells our elders who are apt to teach to test any and all teachers who occupy the lecterns of a church or the chair of a small group Bible study leader, that these things are important The Bible tells us, do not let many of you become teachers, my brothers. Why? Because as such, you incur a stricter judgment. Because what you're teaching, whether it's right or wrong, is going to have an effect. Right doctrine, right effect. Wrong doctrine, wrong effect. So be careful who you listen to. Secondly, he says, do not walk In the counsel of the ungodly, do not stand, do not live in the pathway of sinners. Can I give you Paul's translation of that? Flee temptation. Don't resist temptation. Resist Satan, he flees from you. But flee temptation. What is sin? It is the child of two parents, according to James. It is when the external temptation marries the internal uh, corruption that's still remaining in our life. 
When our internal lust that we're killing in our life, but yet are still there, marry the external temptation, the two together produce sin. And then what does James say? Sin produced death. And he's not talking about just physical death, the death of the death of your marriage, the death of ministry, the death of your witness, the death of your testimony. So what do you do? Here's the if you don't get the child, if you want to kill sin, kill the parents. Kill the parents. Kill the old man daily. Crucify the old man every day internally and flee temptation. I had a ministry one time uh, and when I did the sermons on this psalm, I was as a student pastor in the city in the city of Chattanooga up here and on Broad Street one time I was um, uh, there was um, a a man that uh, there was a place called Broad Street and this was before Chattanooga did its its makeover and this particular area had kind of been known as the red light district well I want to join that with a young man that was in the church and I was working with him and then he would um, he would have issues of unfaithfulness sexually within his marriage. And I worked with them, and by God's grace, they got back together and then came a second time. But by God's grace, they got back together. And then he comes to me a third time, and uh, we're back into it again. I wish I could tell you I was some kind of a brilliant pastor. I'm not. I'm just sitting there talking with him. And for some reason, I was moved to ask him the question, now, where do you work? And he told me. It was on that point of Broad Street. And I said, well, let me ask you. And then it just kind of clicked. I said, let me ask you a question. Where do you park? And he told me. He said, that's closest. That's the parking deck. That's closest. Which then he walked by two blocks. And those two blocks were filled with stores of sexual temptation. I said, you ever stop in those? He said, you know, Pastor, we pray together. I start memorizing Bible. I get an accountability group, and I walk right by them, walk right by them, and then I stop, and I look. And the next day, I may go in, and then before long, here I am. I said, I got an idea. There's another parking deck. You're going to have to walk six blocks, not two blocks. But you don't have to walk by that. I never had to counsel that couple again. Flee temptation. Don't try to resist it. What are you watching? What do you decide as entertainment through all of those YouTube apps you got? What do you decide to look at on a computer? What do you look at in an iPhone? Folks, those things can be used positively or negatively. They're amoral. What do we do with them? Hey, I got an idea. Do you know Ligonier has a wonderful YouTube channel? Hey, I got an idea. There's some wonderful Christian producers of entertainment out there. I mean, really good. You don't have to look at Hallmark every day. Praise the Lord. I, I want you to know, I have never yet seen a Hallmark movie. Yes, I date my wife. Yes, we do go to the flicks she likes to go to. And uh, yes, we do that. But that's one where I draw the line at Hallmark. But I can give you some others. I can give you some others. Folks, don't try 
to resist temptation. Don't walk next to the cliff. Flee it. Flee temptation. Thirdly, thirdly, do, do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Be careful of who your counsel is, comes from, your teachers, your preachers, your disciples. Number two, do not stand in the path of sinners. Be careful of your conduct, the arrangement of your life, where you go, how you live, what you're near, what's around you, because you not only need to deal with the ear gate to your heart, you need to deal with the eye gate to your heart. And then what about, then what about the third one? Do not sit in the seat of the scorner. Do not assemble with the mockers, one translation says. Folks, I think this also deals with other Christians. Now, I know I'm supposed to fellowship with all Christians, and I try to. But I do not want to be around the unbeliever in fellowship. I am more than happy to extend friendship so that I can evangelize and bring Christ to them. But not the fellowship of life. Don't sit, settle in to the assembly of the mocker. And I believe that even looks within Christianity. There was a man, I'm back to Chattanooga again, if you don't mind. There was a man that I tried to minister to that was in our church. He's the most negative man, most cynical man, most sarcastic man I have ever met in my life, period. So I said, I got to take a shot at this pastorally. So I set up a weekly meeting with him. We actually would go to Shoney's and we would meet and uh, for lunch on Thursday. And I would come to that meeting. And after about eight weeks in a row, I was coming up to the meeting and I found myself standing outside just taking deep breaths before I go in. Because I know when I went in, it was just going to be a constant deluge of mocking and attempts at gossip and slander and negative and critical and everything else. You know, you kind of sometimes get drawn to the whisperer. Don't do that. Don't do that. Finally, after three months, I just said to him, I'll call him Sam. I said, Sam, with all due respect, we're going to have to go to once a month. I can't take this. You're killing me. I've done my best to try to encourage you in the Lord, but you're killing me. So I'm not going to settle in here every week. Once a month, we'll take that on. This is, have you ever, I love the way my friend Carl Ellis calls it, crab Christians. Crab Christian. What do I mean by a crab Christian? Well, uh, if you've ever gone crabbing, in the ocean, at the ocean, in the marsh, and and you get the crabs and you start pulling them up out of the water and you put them in a bucket. Have you ever seen what crabs do when they get a bucket? They want to get out. Have you ever watched them crawl all over each other to get out? They'll push others down so they can get out. But worse than that, finally one of them gets up there and gets that claw over the top and what does the other one do? Pulls him right back down. You've got to get people that I love the way there was a wonderful author when I first became a Christian named Evelyn Christensen. And I, she, she made two wonderful comments. She said, if you ever think the grass is greener on the other side, let me tell you why it's on a septic tank. 
And then the other one she said was this. Do not, do not make the settled company of your life. Do not make it basement people who pull you down. Make it balcony people that pull you up so you can be a balcony people that pulls others up. So there are your three priorities. Then he moves from the negative to the positives, and he gives you the passions of the blessed man. What's the passion of the blessed man? Well, the passion of the blessed man is simply this. The passions of the blessed man is, number one, he had, he, so here's, here's the negative. Your counsel, your counsel, your teachers in life, your conduct in life, your company for life, now, He moves to the passions which become the positives in your life. And the positives are all, the two. there's two of them and they're built around the word of God. The first one he says is this, is that he, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, does not stand in the path of sinners, does not sit in the seat of the scorner, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. His passion is, His passion is the Word of God. First of all, his passion is the Word of God to embrace it. I love the emotional language there. The embracing of the Word of God. His delight is in the law of the Lord. But he doesn't simply embrace the Word of God. He engages the Word of God. He engages his, his, it says, it says that his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, by the way, hold it, stop. Harry, why are you saying that the, the word of God? Because law of the Lord means multiple things in context, but its most basic meaning means this. Authoritative teaching from Jehovah. Authoritative teaching from Jehovah. That's the word of God. So his delight is in the word of the Lord, and he he embraces the word of the Lord. Your Bible is not a magic book that you can buy it, put it on the coffee table, and vibrations are going to make you holy coming out of it. You've got to study to show yourself approved. And you won't engage the Bible until you embrace the Bible, the word of God. This is God's word to me. I think I used this illustration once before, but not long ago, um, during that first COVID thing, uh, Cindy and I took the advantage of the opportunity to do some kind of cleaning out of some things and rearranging of some things. And we got to this box and I opened the box and in it were the letters she wrote me while we were courting. Almost one every day. And, oh, look, honey, my letters. Let's look at them. So we opened them up. I had one fear the entire time that we were going to move from letter to letter and I was going to get to a letter that I had not opened and read. Oh, you didn't want to hear from me that day, huh? Yeah, I was hoping we'd get to everyone. Not only would they have been opened evidencing I had read them, but they would be crumpled that I had read them and read them and read them when she sent them to me. Now, by the way, y'all, that, some of y'all have no idea what I'm talking about. It's a letter. You put it in an envelope. You mail it. That's, that's, that, there's a whole way of life that was wonderful that we used to have, and I still do to some degree, obviously. 
I don't want to stand before God and says he wrote. I said I wrote. He says I wrote you sixty six letters. What'd you do with them? Well, I didn't open Zechariah. Um, numbers. <laughs> I think you were having a bad day on that one. No, all Scripture is God breathed. It's His word to you, and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction. You see, you've put off. Now, where do you go for your counsel? The word. Where do you go for your conduct? The word. Where do you go for your company? The word. That's where you go. And you embrace it first, emotionally, delightfully. Then you engage it. And in his law, he meditates day and night. That word meditation in the Hebrew, I can't trace it all for you right now. But let me tell you, it gets to the English with another word. That word meditation. Now, we're not talking about Eastern meditation, transcendental meditation. That is so far from this word. That has nothing to do with biblical meditation. It's we don't try to empty our mind. What we try to do is fill our mind. This is biblical meditation, and the word that it translates to most aptly is the word rumination. Who knows who ruminates? Who ruminate besides Uncle George? Who do you know that ruminates? Cows. Have you ever wondered? White milk, green grass. How does that happen? Well, here's the way it happens. Now, hang on. I know you got lunch coming. And we're just about there where you go to community, Sunday school community and then to lunch. But so you got enough time to get over this. He takes the he she the cow takes the grass and chews it and chews it and chews it and swallows it, but doesn't completely swallow it. And then makes this very strange noise. It's similar to the noise you make when you get a virus, a stomach virus. And they make that noise and they bring it back up and chew it again and swallow it. And bring it back up and chew it again until they get everything nutritious out of it. That's our relationship with the Word of God. You chew it, chew it. You swallow it, and you bring it back up, you chew it, you chew it, you chew it, you swallow it, you bring it back up, you chew it, and you chew it, because it's the word of life. I need to be in that word. That's why Paul was had just left a church where people were dying for Jesus, Thessalonia. And he goes to another church, Berea. They're not yet dying for Jesus. But he says the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. Then he tells us why. Because the Bereans had exhibited something. Here's what it was. The Bereans were more noble-minded because they received the word. That's preaching and teaching. They received the word with eagerness and they examine the scriptures daily to see if these things are so 
So we hear and receive God's word taught and preached. And we are learners, but we don't spill our brains out. Because we're examining the scriptures. Is this a twisted use of the Bible or is it a faithful use of the Bible I've been listening to? And so that we give ourselves to it to understand it. So they, this is the engagement, the embrace of the Word of God, the engagement of the Word of God. Now what's the portrait? And then we'll close with this. What's the portrait? The portrait is this. He's like a tree. The blessed man is like a tree. Not a bush. A tree. A tree firmly planted by streams of living water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers he see the he is like a tree well don't you hear that language those who have been saved by christ become trees of life because jesus is the tree of life they're trees firmly planted. Now stop and think. I don't think I'm overworking my mind on this. If a tree is planted, that means it's been transplanted. It's, it's a tree. And now it's planted. It didn't say he's not a seed planted. It says he's a tree planted. We've been transplanted from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life, into the kingdom of Christ. But notice this tree is, first of all, firmly planted. It's set in. Secondly, it's rightly planted. Where? Streams of water. Can I give you the language we use in the church? The means of grace. It's planted to receive the preaching of the word. It's planted to be in worship. It's planted to sing the word. It's planted to to the streams of living water are filling it because it's been planted. Have you ever gone through a field and see some, and you see a row of trees? What do you know? See that row of trees in the middle of a field with no trees? That means there's a river. That means there's a water source there. And so here is the assembly of God's people by the streams of living water, trees, firmly planted, sealed by the Holy Spirit into the word of God by the blood of Jesus. And not only firmly planted, but they are rightly planted. They're there where the sacraments and worship and preaching and prayer and fellowship and discipleship and all of those things are making an impact in their life. And what's the result? They bear fruit. Now remember, Jesus defined fruit for a Christian. It's in John. It's chapter 15, verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He says, here's the, here's the Christian. They bear fruit. They bear more fruit. They bear much fruit. What's fruit? It's a life that gives glory to God and shows everyone that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That's the fruit-bearing life of a Christian. 
How is it born? It's born when the tree, the believer, is firmly planted, rightly planted by the means of grace, and therefore it bears fruit in its season. Now watch, its leaf does not wither. So what kind of tree are we? Evergreens. We're always to be in season. Always to be in season. Giving glory to God. The wicked, they're not so. They're not trees planted, drawing upon God's word by the power of God's spirit. No, no. They live in the wasteland of death and sin and delight in it. And you would have too if God's grace hadn't changed your heart. They're not like that. They're like chaff. When I was in Uganda, I used to see this. I'd be out in the bush in these little gatherings and preaching, and we'd go by the villages, and you'd see the usually the woman, one of the women that's out there, and she's got this blanket, and over here is this pile of grain that they've harvested, and she sticks the winnowing fork in, and then she comes over, and she throws it up on a windy day, and the wind drives the chaff And the weight of the grain brings it down to be saved. What is the life apart from Christ? It's chaff. It's blown away and burned in the fire. The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. The Lord knows the way of the wicked. And the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, please remember this. The wicked will not be in eternity found in the assembly of the righteous. So who is your, I'm not asking you what is your way. This way of life is dependent on who becomes your way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what undergirds everything that I have attempted to share with you. Can I give you one last thought? I meet people and you met, like me that there were sins in your life when you got converted. He just microwaved them out. And then there are sins he's been crockpotting out for a long time. There's a key here for you. I'm going to close with this. I'm, trying to, I'm just being practical with you. There's a key here for you as a Christian today. My first takeaway was simply this. Make Jesus the way in your life. This will become the way of your life. Put off counsel of the ungodly. Put off conduct of the sinner. Put off the company of the mocker. Put on a delight in the word of the Lord. Meditation upon the word of the Lord. And you'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. But if you're apart from Christ, it's not so. But those of you who won't because Christ is your way and you want to live this way, can I give you a great benefit? Those besetting sins, those entangling sins, there's a key here. The key is trees. And the key is put off, put on. I have two trees in my backyard. 
And in those two trees, I've got one that has got dead leaves on it right now. I've got another one, and the dead leaves have fallen off. It's two types of trees. One, when the sap is cut off, the leaves die and fall off. I can name some sins that happened in my life when I was converted. The sap got cut off that was feeding them. And what happened? They fell out. Was able to kill them. They're gone. I don't even think about them anymore. But I got some besetting sins, entangling sins, just like you do. That's why you got to know about the other tree. You not only cut off the sap to kill sin... You also have got to bring the new sap, the new life, the streams of water. And then the new sap comes up and the new life comes out. This other tree that's got dead leaves, it's going to lose them this spring when the new sap brings the leaves that push it out. You not only put off, you put on now, normally, to put on, you got to put off. But when you put off to put on, one of the ways that you put on is as you're putting on, it'll drive out. When you fill up, there's no room for that which would have filled you up. That's why Jesus said to the man who was delivered from the demon, fill up your heart. If you don't, they're going to come back seven times worse. But when you fill your heart up, you drive them out. I call it full contact discipleship. This is the picture of it. Kill sin and fill up to drive remaining, entangling, hanging on sin out. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the moments we could be in your word. Thank you for the privilege, God, to give you praise and glory and honor this Lord's Day. Uh, We do pray for the many who are battling illnesses today. I lift them up again to you. We pray for those who are affected by the weather and those who are affected by other situations. We ask that you'd help us love one another well in such times. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us love you well. And as we love you well, the one who first loved us, bless us. We want to be blessed men and women who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who do not stand in the path of sinners, who do not sit in the seat of the scorner. But our delight is in your word. And in your word, we meditate, we ruminate day and night. Then make us trees so that we're not put, we're not, there's all kinds of things happening in the culture and in the church. Father, make us trees firmly planted yielding fruit in season and always in season because our leaf, the new leaves do not wither. The leaves that pushed out the old leaves do not wither, but are fed daily. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.